Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 241. 241, and uh, I think we're going to actually talk a little baseball to start. Nothing better to talk about in January <laughs> yeah. than be, you know, being a Met fan. January is the best time of the year. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, always, always looking to tie in different uh, areas that that we can relate to a, a financial topic that we want to discuss. And uh, I am delighted to uh, talk some baseball first because that is my favorite sport to watch. So before we turn the microphone on, we were talking about uh, AJ Pollock had just signed with the Dodgers. And we talked about, I, I told Brendan that I have a secret wish that the Mets are going to sign. They're not signing anyone now, not making trades for the last few weeks because they're gearing up to make a big announcement for Bryce Harper or Manny Machado. And you mentioned something that both of us read about the Vegas odds right now a uh, number of wins right yeah so the, they got the Mets projected for uh 84 and a half wins which is neck and neck with the Phillies right now they they have the Nats favored to win the division the Braves and the Marlins behind the Marlins are way back the Braves are right there in, in the in the bunch too but then you brought up so what happens if the Phillies uh sign somebody like Harper Machado, or Machado right. uh, or Dallas Keuchel who they're talking about some of these big names so the first natural thought is, wow, that's really going to help the Phillies, but it also hurts everyone else in their division because the Mets, for example, play the Phillies 18 times a year. Right. So about 10% of uh, their their schedule during the season are head-to-head games. So, you know, baseball being a win-or-lose sport, no ties, uh, this is a zero-sum proposition. So if the Phillies are getting some wins, you know, it stands a decent chance that maybe the Mets uh, in, in those projections drop a game while the Phillies pick up a couple, right. uh, saying that they're going to they're gonna win a few more games and maybe at the expense of the Mets. I shared a story with Brendan, again, as we were coming in here to record this, how just thinking about that a little further, I read a story, the 69 Mets, it was kind of a fluke of the schedule, the way things worked out. The Mets played most of their games in the Eastern Division in 1969. They played most of the Eastern Division early in the season, April, May, and June, when the weather wasn't so great. The Cubs were out on the West Coast. They were playing West Coast teams. Uh, When the schedule flipped to the second half, the Mets at one point at the end of July were nine and a half games in second behind the Cubs. Uh, And the Cubs totally folded in down the stretch and the Mets just raced ahead and I think the the actual positions flipped the Mets won by nine or ten games uh that year but part of the reason was in July late July August uh the Mets were playing on the west coast and they were playing at night so they were playing in San Francisco Los Angeles San uh San Diego and they they kicked the snot out of all of those West Coast teams that year. That really helped them. The Cubs did the same thing, but they played them earlier. The Cubs now, in the second half of the season, played all of their games, at, or most of their games, at Wrigley 
in the afternoon. Can you imagine playing every afternoon in August hmm. in Chicago at a day game? Everybody just folded on that team. So part of it is the schedule. Yeah, so, so point being, strength of schedule or the way that it was laid out for these teams, the order in which they played opponents and where those games happened had an impact on the way things finished up. And, and this is how we make our segue into uh, finance because it, it had us thinking about uh, something a lot of people in our industry will, will refer to as the sequence of returns. So that. what happens when uh, you're planning for retirement, the year you retire or the year after you retire, we run into a bad market or two years of bad markets. The you know, market goes back to back down double digits two years in a row, like 2001 and 2002. Right. That's exactly, that is sequence of return risk, right? right? So you need to plan for things like that when, when you're mapping out a retirement. And, and one of the ways to do that, a lot of people in our industry will, will use something called a uh, Monte Carlo simulation. Uh, basically what that is going to do is, let's say we have uh, recommended a portfolio that we think is going to throw off something like five, to 6% annual returns over a 30-year retirement. How we get to those 5 6% returns could be very, very different depending on the way reality unfolds. Because we're, it, we're, we're not going, what is not going to happen is we are not going to collect 5% a year in perpetuity. You withdraw 3 or 4% a year and just skim the interest off and live like the ending of Shawshank Redemption uh, for the rest of your days. Like right. that, that is not what is going to occur. There used to be a stat or circulated 20 years ago that the market had returned from the uh, 1929 through 1985, the market had returned something like 10% a year. Mm -hmm. But how many years did the market actually return exactly 10%? that year. Now, I don't think there was a single year right. where that happened. And so we have to get used to the idea that some years we're going to lose some money and some years we're going to make more than we should. Mm -hmm. It's all going to work out. There's the trust factor that comes into this. But I want to circle back to a phrase that we brought up a minute ago called Monte Carlo. One of the unwritten rules when you're sitting down with a client or a potential client is not use the words Monte Carlo. Probably for the best. What's the, what's, the, what's the picture that they have in their head when they hear Monte Carlo? Holy crap. Yeah. We're gambling. gambling. Right, exactly. It sends yeah. a bad message. Yeah. Agree. But correct me if I'm wrong, but we had someone in here uh, in the conference room. This was a couple of years ago. A uh, client was about the right age. And I brought up the uh, scene from the movie War Games. Right. So indulge me for a moment. <laughs> but if you've ever seen the movie War Games, Matthew Broderick came out in 1983, 84, something like that. Towards the end of the game, they actually got the Whopper, the computer, to play tic-tac-toe. And it started out very slowly with an X and an O, and some ding-dong said, put the X in the center. Uh, but they, it would just play game after game after game, slowly, slowly picking up steam, and it would go faster and faster and faster until, you know, 10 seconds later, it is now playing game after game after game, lightning fast, and it's just automatically replaying the game over and over and over and over and over, doing all these simulations, and then it finally comes to the conclusion that you can't win the game. That's kind of like a Monte Carlo simulation in the sense that it runs all of these potential returns over and over and over, gets to a percentage that we think with 90% confidence that this portfolio is going to return X percent a year. Well, right. And it's it's looking at 
if we say we're going to put together a portfolio that averages 5% a year, let's say, it's going to run 1,000 simulations of trajectories that that portfolio could take to average 5% a year over a 30-year period. And those are going to be vastly different. This is a projection, point being that uh, if, if we're projecting something, we are getting 1,000 versions of how this could occur. Reality is we're only going to live, live one of those scenarios. And so this is why this isn't like a set it and forget it proposition where at the beginning of retirement, you run the Monte Carlo, it tells you, yeah, you're probably going to be fine and you leave it alone. A different Monte Carlo would be like, let's run a projected 5% return on our portfolio per year. And let's compare that to a Monte Carlo simulation with 8% a year. What are the odds of that happening? Well, you could you could look, look at it that way, or you could look at it as, here was the Monte Carlo that we ran at the onset of, of this investment plan that we're putting into place to uh, support your retirement. Now that we've lived through two, three years of it and gotten the returns that existed over those two to three years, now you have this amount of money and this amount of years remaining. What about now? What are, what are the odds now? Are they better? Are they worse? They're, they're probably not going to be exactly the same as they were a couple of years before that. And so this is a, a thing where you want to be monitoring this over time. And I think this is probably the uh, one of the tools that you use to drive decisions in terms of what are we doing with the portfolio? Is that Does that still make sense given given our probabilities now? How about withdrawals? Should we continue at the rate that we have been? Have we been shooting for a fixed dollar amount each year, like $50,000 a year being thrown off this portfolio? Or was it a percentage of whatever the value is? Did we want three and a half, four percent of the portfolio, regardless of maybe taking into account market fluctuations a little bit more? How can we alter these different variables to improve the probability if, if it has changed to such a degree that it... Uh, is not something you're you're comfortable with anymore because like I said you're only getting one version of this of these thousand simulations so so to your point uh, you get a couple of years into retirement and the numbers change you may have taken some distributions the market may have changed the value of your portfolio well it definitely has mm -hmm. okay plus your withdrawals and you run these Monte Carlo simulations, I don't want to say all the time, but you you should run them frequently because you want to see what kind of changes should we make. So the idea of being Warren Buffett and that we're going to just hold on to this portfolio forever probably doesn't make a lot of sense because situations change. Not that we, we want to be talking about market timing, but has to be constantly monitored. Yeah, I think that uh, there are certainly people out there that use the sequence of returns to drive a discussion about how they are going to sidestep all of the damage and time their mar time the market so you don't have to worry about sequence of return risk, to which I say baloney. Yeah. They are not going to do that and run, run away from them if that's how they're using this. Th this discussion is more about if you're checking back in on a, on a Monte Carlo that you ran, it's about seeing how reality has impacted the projected plan that you put together and how it should affect your decisions moving forward. And whether that means an adjustment to the portfolio or an adjustment to your lifestyle or taking into account that uh, something in your life has changed. Maybe, maybe in the interim you have picked up like a part-time job like a, like a hobby that you enjoy uh, and you no longer need 50,000 a year from your portfolio. You need 38 now because you're making up the difference doing something you enjoy every day or, or at least for the next couple of years, 
you're going to lower the uh, the distributions from the account, or you're going to raise them because you were doing something and, and that has changed. How is that going to impact the probability of success? But you can use this to look at different scenarios and how they would impact what you would like to do or, or the different options that you have in front of you so that you're making informed decisions. It doesn't always mean you're going to take the one that has the highest probability of success, but you should at least be taking that into account so that you know if you're leaving a more optimal solution on the table that, that you're doing it for a good reason that makes sense to you. I think the other thing when, you know, when we can talk with a client and say probability of returning 5% or 6% a year, we have returning the the distributions you're looking for from your portfolio, we have a high degree of confidence that we can do it. It doesn't it it isn't a hundred percent. No, nothing is and it shouldn't it shouldn't be taken that way. And that's why it's you know you have to work with projections if you're going to do any planning at all. So I understand that Predicting and projecting are oftentimes, uh, you know, things that get blown up because of reality. But I don't think that means you shouldn't do it because flying blind is probably a, a worse proposition than, than what we are suggesting uh, using this tool for. What it can also do is to show, look, at, at this rate that we're headed, uh, things are not going to work. It, it can give the bad news that needs to be brought to the table rather than, uh, you know, being the ostrich with their head in the sand. You, you don't want, to, if you're making a decision continually, that is going to lead to uh, the everybody's unwanted outcome of, of running out of money before before they reach the end. I think you want to be aware of that before the fact and not and not when it's too late. You could you could become aware of that, you know, as this is unfolding so that maybe you can make some adjustments. Uh, so that is no longer the case. Easier said than done, but at least you had the opportunity to rather than realizing one year like wow this is not yeah. <laughs> this is not going to work and I'm not planning on kicking it anytime soon so what's going to happen right that's a real problem i mean that's probably the biggest worry that a lot of people have that's what people is, come to us for yeah, you know you don't want to be running out of money at 74 honestly you should be running out of money at 94 Okay. Right, right. And yeah. and again, you're you're looking at this every year. So if things change and, and you're in poor health and you want to accelerate how you're withdrawing your accounts because you don't think you're going to see 94, if, the, if that is the proposition uh, that is in front of you, okay, so what is this going to do to the plan? And are we going to be okay still? Uh, can can we do this? What do you think? It's funny. We're working on a plan right now where uh, someone is meeting their obligations, but barely. And the conversation that I had with the client was, you're going to be okay as long as there's no surprises. And, you know, surprises at this age, they're usually not good and they're usually very expensive. And so that, I think, is one of the things that throws a lot of these projections and plans off their course is that something comes up where they have an unforeseen expense of twenty-five dollars or $50,000 and this just totally rips apart the plan. Well, I think that when that is the case, if somebody can meet their obligations, but there is no wiggle room in their plan, the probability of success is not going to be very high because you want to bake in surprises. And right. if you are not baking in surprises, I think that you're making a mistake. Yeah. And so the solution there is that as things exist now, this doesn't, it looks sustainable, but it looks fragile and we're not comfortable with that. So what can, what can we do to make this work better? Right. And, 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 uh, the solution isn't going to be, we'll just, uh, we'll lower your life expectancy to 86 oh instead God, of 94, right? No, no. So, th so yeah. the. The, the difference is going to be, can can the portfolio be set up differently to make this work better? 
in a lot of cases, I don't think that that is going to have a huge impact in, in terms of uh, what happens. So uh, I think it becomes a conversation about the lifestyle and what can realistically be expected to be thrown off of this portfolio. Maybe this rate can be continued for the next year, two or three, but some big changes need to be made so that down the road, this can continue uh, and we can feel comfortable knowing that we are going to be surprised in one of these years and that is it is not going to have catastrophic ramifications for their finances. That's that's how you use this to, to map out somebody's retirement. If, you, if you're not baking in wiggle room, then it's you're not doing reality. You're a disservice. Yeah. You really are. Well, good stuff. Yeah, all, all from the Mets, huh? How Hard did, to believe. How did this start? So I, you know what? I think I'm probably the leader of the Jerry Kuzman fan club. So I'll remind, I remind everybody in August and September of 1969, Jerry Kuzman went nine and one with like a zero ERA. Not in the hall of fame. Not in the hall of fame. 2,600 strikeouts. Veterans uh, committee. Let's take care of that. I think it's, it might even be too late for that. I don't know. They it's got Harold Baines in. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening to episode 241. We will uh, catch up with you next next time.